You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Singing is one of the most proper human responses that we have to the gospel. Um, It's just the way, I mean, what else do you do? Maybe fall down, maybe just be in awe, but to sing. And it doesn't really matter, people, how you sound, okay? Let it rip sometime. Be just totally taken up by the gospel. And that's kind of the the hope always with a message. Um, what, What do I want anybody to ever get out of? What does a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel, ever want people to actually get from a message? Uh, not a few laughs, although that's always kind of fun, but, you know, um, that at the end of it, the best response we can have is, wow, what a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. Wow. And to sing, just to respond to that. So why the songs of Christmas? Because actually... If you read the Gospel of Luke specifically, chapter 1 and 2, it's, it's a musical. I don't know if you realize that or not. We have songs from Elizabeth, from Zechariah, from Mary, from the angels, and from Simeon. All, that's how they respond in poetry and in song, rejoicing, celebrating, amazed at what God is doing in this world through the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. And so that's what you find. And what you find also in the scriptures, if you read it from Genesis through all the way through, even if you can get through things like Leviticus, you will find there's a lot of singing going on at any time when God is doing something amazing. When God intervenes, when God comes and comes and visits this world, visits our human condition, the response is rejoicing. We saw that last week. We talked about this. In the book of Job, God says when he was creating the world, it was the sons of God, the angels, shouted out for joy. And when um, God rescued Israel, the slaves, from Egypt through the Red Sea, the first thing Miriam and Moses do is sing. I will sing unto the Lord, and he has triumphed gloriously. And we see again and again and again through Scripture breaking out into songs. Whenever we hear the gospel, experience the good news, see what God is doing. So today, we are going to do a little more of that. We are now going to visit and be with someone who was, well, who was made mute by his unbelief. He didn't quite believe the angel Gabriel, and he was mute for nine months. Zechariah. He was mute until he finally wrote down the name of his son as the angel told him, the name John. I'm a little partial to that name. But according to God's word, and immediately, what does Zechariah do when his lips are opened up? He is able to speak. He sings. He prophesies. He proclaims. Our text this morning, Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, 
For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised in, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. This uh, poetry that Zechariah sings, proclaims, is called the Benedictus, which is Latin for the first word of it, blessed. And it's an amazing passage, actually. You can basically see the entire history of the world in it, in a sense. The history of God's plan of salvation from the beginning all the way to the present time and to the birth of Jesus Christ and what God is doing through him in this little poem. And so today, we're going to look at three highlights in it. We can't go into every word and every detail. Um, that I get our New Testament classes to do, right? <laughs> they do an exegetical paper in the New Testament at FGCU and have to actually take a passage like this and go through all of that work in the Greek. Yeah, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? But they like it. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. But today, we're just going to look at three parts of it. And what we find in these three parts are we have a God who visits, a God who redeems, and a God who shines. And I picked these out partly because of some of the unique words and unique things about this passage that Zechariah is talking about. First of all, we're going to look at the God who visits. Okay, William, William Belly uh, has said it, a number of people have said it in one way or another, showing up is like 90% of the battle and just making sure your hair is really cute when you do it. Um, <laughs> others have said, you know, 80%, 70%, whatever, but showing up is so important, right? Um, boy, we struggle with just showing up. Human beings don't always show up. In fact, um, how many times have you said to someone, I'll be there, and then you know, you weren't, right? And um, you show up late, or you don't show up at all, or how many of you actually ghosted somebody? Maybe you don't know what that means. Ghosting is when you just not only don't show up, you don't respond, you don't let them know, you don't do anything, and all of a sudden you just disappear. That's us, not our God. Not our God at all. God shows up. He does not stay back. He does not wait. Oh, yes. Zechariah is celebrating that God has finally visited us, he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited and redeemed his people. He may not uh, show up early, but he shows up just on time, our God. And he does not hold back and he doesn't wait. The text did not wait for everybody to get their act together. Then I'm going to show up. 
You know, I'm not making a big entrance when everybody's been whipped up into a frenzy and waiting. And No, God shows up at the right time, even when we weren't ready for him. Even when Israel was not ready and the world actually would not welcome him. The Gospel of John will say that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But God still shows up even when he's not welcomed because he knows what we need. Now, what's interesting in that word for visiting, I looked at this. Um, it's the word episkeptomai. That's a mouthful, isn't it? Greek, it's amazing how many words are actually in our English are from Greek, okay? Now, you might go like, where is there an English word in this? Well, epi is kind of a, um, a prefix, which means over or up. But the word skeptomai is the middle passive for scop- scopos. Have you ever scoped something out? Right? That is, you kind of check it out. That's what the word can mean. It can mean to select, to go see, to look at, or to visit. And it's used a few times in the, New, in the Gospel of Luke. It's actually used when Jesus comes to a small town named Nain, and he sees a funeral procession, and he notices that the one who is grieving the most is a widow, and it's her son that's going to be buried. What does he do? He doesn't just show up and and look and go, oh, that's so sad. Jesus shows up, and he touches that dead body and raises that young man to life. And afterwards, it's Luke chapter 7. This is what it says. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. That's the word that Zacharias using. When God shows up, He does something, and he does something to save. He doesn't just show up to inspect or dissect or to reject. He shows up to save and to redeem. Now, this last week, I think it was this last week. I can't remember. It's all a blur at times. We've been doing a podcast on campus, and a number of students have been doing it with me, AJ and Jaden and Grant and JR and Grace. And I shared with them, we're going through, of all things, talking about God's law and also the gospel. And I shared with them, when I went to India in, I think, 2007, I had a two-week trip with Seva Bharat, which means to serve the nation, and also, or Mission India. And we were visiting different Christian small churches. And let me tell you, uh, in India, Christianity is facing some severe persecution there. But what amazed me the most is how many of the lower caste, what was called the Dalits or untouchables, were embracing the gospel and coming into the Christian, Christian faith altogether. But in one sense, it made a lot of sense. You see, in that culture and in their religious background, this untouchable group has been told all their lives from their birth on that you're not worth anything. You don't matter. In fact, you must have done something to be born like that. And, in fact, if you're going to ever get God's attention, you're going to have to do a good job of being in that class 
and maybe we'll let you, but you have to go on pilgrimages to visit a shrine where God has showed up at one time here or there, or you've got to pay an entry fee to get in, or you have to do a vow or a celebration of some type to get God, to get him or the divine to pay attention to you in some form. All their lives, they've been told they're not worth anything. And then all of a sudden, a Christian shares with them, no, God is the one who doesn't make you show up. He shows up in your life. He visits you. He came to be one with you. He came to be the lowest of the low. Jesus was born in poverty. He was born homeless. He was born as a refugee, by the way, because <laughs> shortly thereafter, he has to flee to Egypt without any, uh, any documentation of any type. And there he grows up for a while until they can come back to the hometown of Nazareth, also another place that would be like Podunkville, the middle of nowhere. And when they hear that God has visited, that God seeks them out, that God has chosen them, that God wants them, that God shows up, he's concerned over them, they embrace it. They welcome it. They, they are amazed at the gospel. Christianity at its core has a God who visits. Not people of a certain status or quality, not people of a certain level of piety. Notice the text I mentioned before that Zechariah himself, when the angel shows up to him, he does not believe Gabriel. This is not going to make sense. Even though he knows the history of Israel, even though he knows that Abraham and Sarah had a child at old age, somehow when it comes to him, this doesn't make sense. He's not a man of great faith. But God still shows up. You have a God who visits you. And he visits you wherever you happen to be. Some of you have probably heard, and I've used this before from Corey Ten Boom, she was um, a part of a family in the Netherlands who, um, during, um, during the Nazi regime, hid Jewish people in their home to protect them and ended up getting arrested and sent to a concentration camp where her sister died, her father died. She's the only one that survived from her whole family. She wrote a book called The Hiding Place about all of this. And she has said, and I just love this, and it's one of those things that sticks with me through the years. No matter how deep you are, God is deeper still. No matter where you are, God is present. Now, she doesn't just make this up. It comes from Psalm 139 as well, where the psalmist says, where shall I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? And basically, the answer is nowhere. Nowhere. God visits you where you are, and he doesn't visit you to rip you to shreds or to look at you with disdain, but he visits you to comfort you, to save you, to redeem you, to love you, to forgive you, to welcome you. He visits you in any of your needs. You got a God of redemption, not a God of probation. You have a God of salvation, not of information. When he shows up, he does something. And secondly, Zechariah sings that we have a God who remembers. 
Now you might go like, yeah, I don't know if I want him to remember everything. I get it. I, don't, I get it. I don't want him to. But what's fascinating in this hymn, this song that Zacharias sings, he doesn't just say that God remembers everything or that God is omniscient. No, 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 no. What he says that's the most important is God remembers his vow, his promise, his oath. He celebrates the fact that God remembers his promises that he made to Abraham, that he made to David, and he's fulfilling them right now. It's through the prophets over hundreds of years, God spoke promises. He spoke them, and he's kept them. Now, what's interesting is that word for promise, or what's used in this text is the word for vow or oath. It's called horkos, which is, um, when I was studying this text, it seems to come and derived from a Greek word called herkos, very similar, which means to limit or to fence in. And what's going on here is that God is saying, hey, I have limited my, I have chosen, I am absolutely free, God is absolutely free and can do whatever he wants, but God in his freedom has chosen to make promises and says, I'm always here. If you want to find me, you want to know where I am? You want to know what I'm going to do? I have fenced myself into this promise, and I'm always going to keep it no matter what. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no conditions. There's no uh, possibilities with God's promises. They are an oath. In fact, when God made the promise to Abraham, uh, he does something. He has to swear by himself, and he alone makes the promise. And Abraham is asleep at the time. He's not even doing anything to receive it. That's how God promises to us. You know, and um, by the way, it's very unique. In all world religions, we have a God who promises. No one else does. There are no promises, by the way, in the whole Dharmic tradition, that is, all these Eastern faiths. Um, but rather, there's a lot of conditional clauses. That is, if you follow these precepts, if you do these methods, if you practice this, if you are sincere and earnest and try to live and purify yourself and train your thoughts and habits, etc., then potentially... You will be aligned with the Tao, the, the divine force, the karma in this world. Then the gods or goddesses may be on your side and bless you in some way. All conditions. Not in the scriptures, not in the Hebrew Bible, not in the New Testament. Promises. And even in Islam, another Abrahamic faith, God is an inspector he is the judge, he is the creator, but he is not the promise keeper. He doesn't even make a promise. He may have a thousand different names, just different attributes, but none of them can you nail him down and say, this is how you always are. This is what you say you will do. But we have a God who promises. 
and who remembers his promises. And faith holds on to those promises. And Martin Luther, the reformer, said, you can basically rub God's nose in his promises. <laughs> in other words, it's like, wait a minute, Lord. This is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. There's no conditions on that. I'm one of those. That settles it. Why is that important? That we have a God who makes promises? A, a God where you know where he is in that promise? So that you can have some certainty. Your salvation is not based on how smart you are, how pious you are, how good you are today, how you're feeling. You don't just don't have to worry about the state of the world or the state of the climate or the state of our culture. It doesn't depend on diplomacy or probability or anything else outside of God. It depends on his promise. You hold on to that promise. And there's no, no way God wants to even get out of that promise with you. He doesn't change those promises. He has chosen freely to make them and therefore, you can count on them. So you have a God who visits and a God who remembers his promises. And finally, Zechariah sings that we have a God who shines. Zechariah speaks this toward his infant son and speaks about the coming of another beyond his son. He says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So now when I study a passage to try to bring a message on Sunday, um, I don't just try to shoot from the hip too often, okay? <laughs> but I try to look at what is unique or unusual about a passage like this. How is Zechariah, what is he saying that's a little, it's like, what's catching my attention here? What's unique? And um, though this passage is filled with a chock full of words, like I said, it's kind of the whole plan of salvation that God has had. There's a there's a word in here that doesn't occur that often. It's the Greek word antole. And it's used here, it's translated in the ESV as sunrise, which is like, what is this sunrise, right? Others translate it as day spring, other English translations, or the dawn. Or it's the term that's used by the Magi when they said they saw the star arising in the and Tole, the east, because that's where the sun rises, the day spring happens. So it's used in a variety of ways. So why, what is Zechariah doing with a word like that? Is it just because it sounds nice? It's because I like sunrises and sunsets, they're pretty? Not at all. Though Zechariah may have not been a man of great faith, he was still a, a, a Jewish priest within a tradition that sh sure knew God's words through the prophets. And when he's referring to this day spring, this sunrise, he's referring all the way back to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9. 
where Isaiah speaks about the one who will come, who is called a child, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Before that, Isaiah says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light is shown. Zechariah is saying, the light's here now. The light is coming. The light is the one that my son will prepare the way for. Scholarly articles have wondered, wait a minute, it says day spring from on high in this text. Day spring from above in this text. That there is something going on with this one, that he's not just a person, but there's a divine quality about this one, and we know that that's the case with Jesus. And that when he talks about breaking in to the darkness, that a light is shining in the darkness, he's not just metaphorically saying, well, you know, he's going to give you a little more sunshine here and there. Luke 179, part of this song that Zechariah says is to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's what the darkness is. Tell me, is this world filled with darkness? Yeah, there's not even a hesitation, is there? And we're not talking about just the fact that now, you know, we're approaching winter solstice where we have less light during the day. We see the darkness all over the place. You can see it, you know, just the way people are treating each other, even within our society, let alone the brutal regimes that are occurring around the world. The gospel is for dark times. The good news of Jesus is for these times. Zechariah lived in a very dark time. He was living oppressed under a regime that was extremely brutal called Rome. And boy, their propaganda machine might have made it sound like it was wonderful, but it was a true military dictatorship. And he was living among a people who, and a priesthood that wasn't wonderfully pious but corrupt to the core, where money screamed and didn't just speak and make decisions. There was now no part of Zachariah's society that he could look at and go, yeah, here's the bright spot. None. So the songs that we're singing about in Christmas do not deny the reality of this world. By, they accentuate the neediness of this world, and they also celebrate the goodness of our God and what he is doing. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not an add-on. It's not a, oh, this is a nice and bright and breezy thing to add to a nice and bright and breezy time. It's not a vitamin supplement to make things a little better. It is light in the darkness. It is joy in the gloom. It is a release for people who have been captive, a removal of the guilt Peace where there was violence, forgiveness where there was sin. And I would be abandoning my role as a proclaimer of God's word if I didn't at least acknowledge the reality of things around us. Frederick 
Buchner writes it this way, unless those who proclaim the gospel acknowledge honestly that darkness, they might as well save their breath for all the lasting difference their proclaiming will make to anybody. You know, if we just want to deny, you know, this hour on Sunday morning is not where we forget about everything else and try to have a little entertainment and then we have to go back to the real world. This is the real world. This is it. And we have to deal with the real world as it is. Um, maybe more than others recently, I read an interview with uh, Phil Clay. He is a veteran of at least a 13-year month deployment in the Iraq War years ago. And now he's a writer. He's written a couple of acclaimed books. He's won national awards for them. And recently, he wrote a book called Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. He was interviewed recently by um, the New York Times about what's been going on in the world right now, uh, both Ukraine, uh, the Israel-Hamas war, all of these things. And it's so easy, he says, for us to try to ignore, dismiss all of this type of stuff because, well, it's not comfortable. He also says that dismissing the horror and the suffering of any one side or the other in any war, actually we lose our own humanity in it. He, he wrote this, he said this, the idea that we must close our eyes to suffering that is not ideologically useful is morally degrading to ourselves. <laughs> There's a lot of people that we are right now um, weeping with and mourning with and grieving with and praying for. So then um, the interviewer asked a question because he realized that Phil Clay has gone through war himself. He sees the realities of these things. He writes eloquently about it. But what he noticed is that Phil Clay has been a Christian throughout all of it. And he's like, how in the world did you do that? So he asked him, you didn't walk away from a belief in God or a just God after seeing and experiencing the things that you saw and experiencing during your time in Iraq. How do you see God in a war zone? I really like how Phil answered. He said, how do you not see God in a war zone? The God I believe in was tortured and died in agony on the cross. God is there when I see another human being and see something of infinite worth and value. God is there in this infinite horror and majesty of the world. The idea to me that all of this beauty and all this horror is nothing but mere matter seems ridiculous. And I can't disentangle my sense of horror and my sense of the beauty and value of what is being destroyed in war. I'm also deeply convicted by the sense that there's a God whose ultimate experience was to suffer and die, and that that's not the totality of the story. That is a central image in the idea of forgiveness and unearned redemption. It is deeply, deeply important to me. I don't know what other option there is. That's what Zachariah is actually singing about. He's not singing about just a nice world and nice people. He is singing about the darkness of this world the darkness of death itself, 
and that God is doing something about it. Not by snapping his fingers or thinking good thoughts or trying to get you to be more positive, but by visiting with us, coming into the midst of it, letting it affect him so deeply that Jesus Christ dies upon a cross for it all. Zachariah's son, John the baptizer, he's going to face darkness in his own life as a forerunner to the Messiah. The darkness of prison and even of being beheaded. And that all speaks to the path that Jesus is on from his birth. That he is going to be immediately at risk, as I mentioned, from <laughs> King Herod, who is a totally unchecked tyrant with the authority to kill anyone and anything, including children. And throughout his life, Jesus would face the darkness of death in all sorts of ways. And he'd offer his own life as the light and the way out. And that, through his own death, through the fact that Jesus faces our darkness and his life is taken from him, through the fact that Jesus faces our poverty and our rebellion and gives us his riches, through all the things that he did, the great exchange that happens there, that is why Zechariah can sing, here's the new dawn, here's the new day, here's the day spring from on high who's rescuing us. So you have a God who visits, who shows up, will not leave you alone. You have a God who remembers not your mistakes, but his promises to you. And you have a God, you have a God who shines his face on you. And it cost him everything to do that. That's why Zachariah sings. That's why we have the songs of Christmas. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day, for this gospel word. I know um, you see the darkness all around us, the darkness of this world right now, Lord. We see the Israel-Hamas war. We see the atrocities. We see so many civilians caught up in the middle of it, Lord God. It grieves us. We don't know how to solve it. Maybe we just need to uh, offer all this to you, Lord God, and pray that somehow your light will shine in that dark place right now. We lift up to you, Lord, other hot spots or conflict zones around the world, some that are making the news and others that are in the back burner right now, Lord God, but you are there. And I pray that for your, uh, your people there, your servants there, wherever they happen to be, Lord, where, uh, whatever they are facing, that you would shine through them your love, your mercy, and grace to many. Lord, this can be a very dark time of the year for people who have experienced loss and grief and questions and doubts. We specifically lift up to you right now Haley Hanahan and her brother Wayne as they are grieving this week, uh, Linda, their mother's uh, passing. We thank you for the strong faith that Linda had and for her faith community 
at Oak River Church, Lord. And we pray that you would just bless um, us as we walk alongside Haley and the family, as we, O oh Lord, grieve with her, and we also, Lord, proclaim to her the good news of the resurrection and the life everlasting. We thank you, Lord, for Haley's strong faith. We pray that you would use us as your servants alongside of her. We lift up to you, Lord, Bob Beverly, um, and now that he's returned home from rehab, Lord, uh, for Joan as well, as uh, they just work through that time uh, of healing. Provide for Joan and for Bob all the care they need right now. Lift them up and fold them in your love and grant, O oh Lord, your mercy upon them. Lord God, there are um, students here this morning and those who are studying this morning elsewhere who are struggling to finish the term well. We just pray that you would work through the last week of school, Lord. Visit them in their needs. Bless them and give them a time with family and friends over the holidays to truly rejoice in you, Jesus, the reason for the season. We pray that you would be with all who are traveling, both here to South Florida and away from here, Lord, to other places around the nation. We pray, Lord, that you would guide us. But most importantly, Lord, that you would visit with us and with our families and be present among us, Lord. Be present in such a way that we realize this season is filled with your goodness and glory beyond the lights and the presence is your presence and your light, Lord God. As we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper this morning, Lord, we just confess to you that we cannot say that we are without sin because if we did, we would just be deceiving ourselves and there would be no truth in us. But you've promised, Lord, that as we confess our sins, you are faithful, you are just in keeping your promise and you will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We hold to that promise this morning of that forgiveness, one for us through Jesus Christ on the cross. And by his glorious resurrection, we know the way of everlasting life is open to us. So prepare us, O oh Lord, to receive your, your, your uh, gift and presence in our lives through this supper, Lord, that we may grow closer to you in, in uh, faith and to love to those around us. And Lord God, uh, we offer ourselves to you this day, and as we give our tithes and offerings this morning, we just pray that you would bless them for the sake of your kingdom and your work in Southwest Florida and beyond. All these things we lift up to you this day, confident you hear us because of Jesus. The sunrise, the day spring from on high. In his name we pray, amen.